Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Thoroughly appreciated how Brother Mike welcomed everyone this morning by saying, Good morning, family. That's how we should perceive one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me, there's a reason the Lord calls us brothers and sisters because we have the same Father. That's a good thing. So, good morning, family. I'm thankful that you are here to worship with us this morning. I'm going to begin with this illustration. There was four pastors who got together on a regular basis just to encourage and edify one another, not the four that are on staff currently here at Calvary. These are four different guys. <clears throat> and they were meeting one, one uh, afternoon, and one, one of the pastors said, you know, fellas, we get together and we encourage each other, but our folks come to us and they share their hearts and they confess sins they share needs, and we need to do that for one another. We need to hold each other accountable. And so after a little bit of discussion, they all agreed that that's what they would do. And so they began sharing some sin struggles that they had. The first fellow shared that he, when he was out of town, he and his wife liked to go to movies. Movies that may be questionable, movies they probably shouldn't see, but they went to see them anyway. The second gentleman, second pastor, confessed that he liked to have a cigar he loved a good cigar. He would go out on his back deck where nobody could see him and smoke his cigar uh, pretty much on a weekly basis. The third fellow said he liked to play online poker. So these three fellows confessed, and they got to the fourth pastor, and he was reticent to share anything. And so they pressed him, come on, man. The three of us have shared. We know you have sin things that you need to confess, and we can hold you accountable and walk with you in that sin issue as well. And he said, okay, okay. My sin struggle is gossip, and I can't wait to get out of here. So you all think gossip is funny, huh? <laughs> gossip is not funny. Gossip is grotesque. That illustration, though, that illustration was funny. <clears throat> to confess, the word confessed in normal usage means to admit fault or guilt. For our purposes this morning, uh, uh, we need to recognize that it means to acknowledge sin. To confess is to acknowledge sin. To confess is making known to others our own errors or our own wrongdoing. To confess, and I would encourage you to grasp hold of this little two-word phrase, to confess is to get real with the Lord about our sin. We'll look more in depth at the meaning of confession as we progress through the message time. But uh, Biblical teaching, <clears throat> excuse me, biblical preaching on confession could be a weeks-long series without much effort searching for reference materials. The desire this morning is not to share a comprehensive understanding of the biblical doctrine of confession, but it is to focus on the necessity of our acknowledgement, even as genuine children of God, as, a fam as the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to acknowledge the necessity for our need to confess, and to confess regularly, consistently. And that confession is compulsory if we are to be in harmony in our fellowship with God and in harmony with one another. Growing up in the South with Southern roots, and I didn't grow up in the South, but I grew up with Southern roots, and I pastored in the South for many years of ministry, I often heard this phrase, I am just a sinner saved by grace. I'd like to take a moment to humbly expose two different errors in our way of thinking. I think that's one of them, and the other is, is counter to that one, but I think they're both errors, and I think we need to, to reconcile how we should be thinking about ourselves in order to come to the point where we recognize the necessity for our confession on a daily basis, and that confession will yield compassion. 
This is the first error in our thinking. Scripture doesn't call the redeemed sinners. The Scripture calls us saints. 61 times in the New Testament, we as the church are called saints. Once in Matthew, four times in Acts. Most of Paul's letters, he begins by addressing the saints in that city. Those letters, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians, and Timothy, 1st Timothy. And then 12 times in the book of Revelation, believers, the disciples, are called saints. You see, this is an identity issue. We are not just a sinner saved by grace. Prior to salvation, prior to redemption and justification, we were just sinners. That's a reality. But if we have been saved by grace, we are not just sinners. We are now saints who sometimes sin. I think there's a significant theological difference between these two identities. If we accept that our identity is, if we accept the idea that our identity is just sinners, the logical conclusion then would be we may as well sin because that's who we are. That's our identity. But if we recognize that our identity changes when we repent, when we receive his grace, when we're adopted into the family of God, when we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, we change our identity, we now become a child of God, we can recognize that we are saints, not just sinners, but saints who sometimes sin. We can confess when we do sin, repent of that sin, and grow in our sanctification so that we sin less. That, brothers and sisters, is who we are. We are saints who sometimes sin. The second error uh, is an on-the-other-hand error. That's one thought process. The other is the fallacy of having it all together. No, not only are we not just a sinner who saves by grace, we're saints who sometimes sin, we are not people who have it all together either. I hope we can understand that. Why is it, do you think, that we put on this facade and we put on this fake front when we come to church and gather as brothers and sisters in Christ that we want everyone else to think, I have it all together. <clears throat> My life is just fine. I've got it all together. Everything is good. When the reality, that's true for none of us. None of us have it all together. None of us have arrived. The church is not a gathering of folks who have it all together. It's a gathering of broken people who've been saved by his glorious grace who are in the process of becoming more like Christ, none of whom have arrived, amen? That's how we need to look at the gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ. We come to worship a, a gracious, loving God who's forgiven us and not only forgiven us of our sin, but forgives us constantly of our sins when we confess and repent those sins. Because we have not yet arrived at complete conformity to Christ, we have a need for confession. Regular, daily, humble confession. We need to get real with where we are in our sanctification process so that we continue to progress. Either one of these errors could manifest itself in a lack of serious seriousness about confession and sanctification. So they're both very dangerous. As I look around the auditorium this morning, may I share what I see? That's a responsive question. May I share what I see as I look around the auditorium this morning? Here's what I see. Not a single person who has it all together. Not a single person who has it all figured out spiritually. 
Not a single person without a need to come this morning with a heart of humble confession for how we have failed the Lord this past week to worship and praise him for who he is and who he has made us, saints who sometimes sin. How do I know that we all have sin that we need to confess? Now, I need some participation from those who've been through Disciple Maker training class. And there's only a total of about 50 so far, so you're going to need to be loud. If you've been through a Disciple Maker training class, please answer this question with me. The only completed disciple is a? Well, at least they're scattered around the auditorium. The only completed disciple is a dead disciple. None of us have arrived. None of us arrived till we're with the Lord. Excuse me. So how do I know we all have sin we need to confess? Because as I look around, I can tell most of you are not dead. (laughs) Most of you. So we have a need to confess. This thought process of the need for regular, consistent confession is certainly not the norm for the average professing Christian. It, however, should be and must become the norm for those of us who name the name of Christ. The world generally decides, desires to hide their guilt. That's a natural response for all of us. However, the supernatural response, the response given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us, is to be honest. It's to be truthful, to own our sin, to confess it, to repent of it, to get real with our Father about it and receive the peace and joy of forgiveness and renewed fellowship with him that he promises if we will confess. Confession and repentance of sin genuinely, if it's genuine, results in changed behavior through submission to the power of the Holy Spirit. Unconfessed sin, concealed sin, destroys relationships, creates heartache, induces stress that leads to emotional, mental, and physical turmoil. As we progress in our walk with God, we will increase in our acts of confession, both to the Lord and to one another. I am sorry, Father, thank you for your forgiveness. And I am sorry, will you please forgive me? Should and will become oft-repeated phrases for a growing believer in Jesus Christ. The two phrases that my wife and when my children were still at home that they heard as well. The two phrases that I repeated most often in a home with children and still with my wife are these two phrases, I love you and I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? There's a reason that second one was there often is because I fail often. Those were the two most repeated phrases in my home, I love you and I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? It was followed in a close third by I'm hungry, but they heard all three of these regularly and consistently. If you would, please turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Proverbs chapter 28. We will delve into the truths this morning of just verse 13. We'll reference several other texts as we walk through verse 13, but we will see from the text that confession yields compassion and that confession of sin is a vital part of the sanctification process. Please know that expositing one verse per week is not the norm, That's not what we normally do here. If you're visiting with us for the first time or 
one of the first few times. Expositing one verse a week is not the norm. If we were just to do that through the book of Proverbs, there are 912 verses. It would take us 17 and a half years. That is not the pastoral team plan, so be at ease. This morning, though, we are going to exposit just one verse. If you would, if you are able, please stand with me as we read verses 13 and 14. We're not going to walk through verse 14 together this morning, just verse 13. But verse 14 in Proverbs 28 is a parallel thought, so I'll read that as we begin our text, begin our sermon with Scripture reading. Proverbs 28:13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a gracious and merciful God, that you are a compassionate, loving, kind, and true God, that you are a forgiving God, and your passionate heart as our Father for those who have already repented, received Christ as Lord and Savior, understand the forgiveness and the adoption as your children. Those who have you, you have made saints because of the change in identity you have given us, your passionate heart is that we will be honest, that we will get real with you about our sin. Father, so we can change, so that your spirit can change us, so we can grow and mature in our faith, conform to the image of Christ. Father, this morning as we're gathered together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we recognize that none of us have it all together. None of us have arrived. We are broken people with a wonderful, glorious Savior. And so, Father, as we worship this morning, I pray, beginning with my own heart, that your Holy Spirit would do a dramatic work in the heart of every person who's gathered within the sound of this teaching because your word is powerful and your spirit is true. And, Father, your promise is if we confess, we will find compassion. Father, I pray that you would speak through me. I have nothing of spiritual value to offer outside of the truths of your word and surrender and submission to your spirit. So I pray that I would be totally, completely surrendered, Father, because you are God and you alone are worthy of our praise. We love you, Lord, and praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, please be seated. May we pray together this morning that every individual within the sound of the word of God, beginning with the speaker, will desire to get real about our need for confession with our Father. When it comes to dealing with our sin, our text presents two potential options and two resulting outcomes. Two options and two outcomes. The first option we see in the text for how we may deal with sin is to conceal it. That then is point number one, or option number one, the concealing of sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his transgression. The word conceal in Hebrew language is kasaw, and it's a primitive root. It means to fill up the hollows, or by implication, to cover over or to hide. Now, I don't, I know I need to, but I don't use mascara or makeup or cosmetics of any kind. I know you can tell that I probably should, but I don't. There's probably a glare for most of you from what's up here shining back, but I don't do that. But I, if I understand correctly, women have cosmetic called a concealer. Is that correct? Is there a such thing as a concealer? Shake your head this way, not men, just women. <laughs> a concealer does the same thing that we're talking about here. It's intended to hide the hollows or hide the little spaces that you don't want to be seen. That's what a concealer does, and that's the, the meaning or the, the gist of what God is teaching us here. 
he who conceals or he who covers his sin will not prosper. That's not how God wants us to handle our sin, but that's what the word is talking about. This is hiding our sin. It's holding on to it. It's keeping it close to the vest. It's an unwillingness to acknowledge and to confess this sin. And there are multiple ways that we, even as believers, there are multiple ways that we seek to cover our sin. In a sermon on this proverb, Charles Spurgeon describes some of the ways that men attempt to cover their sin, all of them in vain. And I think we need to recognize that. All of us know that. Attempting to cover or hide our sin is always, always in vain. And yet, our flesh responds in a way that we attempt to do this, unfortunately, more often than we care to admit. As I walk through Spurgeon's list, let's ask ourselves how often we seek to cover or conceal our sin in some of these manners. The first one is excuses and justification or rationalizing. I did that because, we say sometimes. And then we come up with some of the most ludicrous thought processes to rationalize and cover our sin. God's desire for us when it comes to our sin is to just get real. He already knows Hiding it from people doesn't hide it from God, and God is the one that matters. Just confess it. Just own it. He knows, and he realizes. Or we realize he knows. He realizes we know, too. So excuses and justification. A second is secrecy, perhaps the one most common among believers. Let me just keep this to myself. I don't want anybody involved in my space. Nobody needs to get involved in my business. Do we realize that is antithetical to what the scripture teaches? Somebody needs to be involved in your space. Somebody needs to be walking with you, holding you accountable for your sin issues. All of us have that desperate need. You know why? Because none of us have arrived. When you're perfect, I'll stop preaching and encouraging and challenging you to have someone walk with you and hold you accountable. You know why? Because you won't be here. You'll be with Jesus and you won't need this anymore. The only completed disciple is a? A dead disciple. Still looks like most of you are not there yet. Lies is another way that we cover our sins. Denial and lies are pretty much the same thing. Have you ever heard somebody who you know did something say, no, I didn't do that? Christians? Sad, isn't it? Schemes to evade responsibility. Sometimes we go to great lengths to avoid acknowledging our sin. Why do we do that? Why do we put so much trouble in hiding and covering and seeking to avoid our sin instead of disowning it. Don't you believe or do you believe with me that if we all came to church recognizing that nobody's arrived, it would be a whole lot easier for us to deal with our sin? But I gotta keep this facade up because if so-and-so, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so knows about this, they're gonna think less of me. God already knows. So we might as well just get real. Now, please don't hear me. I'm not promoting standing up on this platform and confessing all of your dirty laundry. That's not the point. But have someone you're walking with that knows so you can confess honestly and openly before God and they can walk with you as you grow and mature past the struggle with that sin. Another one that Spurgeon mentions is time. Ignore it and it will go away. If that's your way of hiding or concealing your sin, how's that going for you? Is it going away? Tears is another. These would be tears of regret, certainly not tears of repentance. 
I'm going to add one to Dr. Spurgeon's list, and that's passing blame. We're all very familiar with this one, I am certain. Genesis 3, 12, and 13. The man said, the woman. And we could stop there because that's usually our excuse for our sin, isn't it, men? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Passing of blame. It's easy to blame someone else for our own sin struggles, isn't it? Men, have you ever said this to your wives? Well, if you wouldn't have fill in the blank, then I never would have fill in the blank. Anybody? So the rest of you are lying. (laughs) We've all said that to our wives. Well, if you wouldn't have honey, then I never would have. Do we realize that we do realize? I don't have to ask that question. We realize that even if someone else commits a sin or does something wrong or unwise, that's never any excuse for our reciprocation in committing another sin. Just own it. Men particularly, let's just man up, get real, own our sins, stop blaming our wives like Adam blamed Eve. Well, that woman that you gave me, she gave me this fruit. There was a woman who went to her pastor and she said this, I I have a habit that I know is hurting my testimony, the habit of exaggeration. I start to talk about something and I I go on and on enlarging, enlarging the story and people suspect that what I'm telling them is not true and they lose confidence in me. I'm trying to overcome it, Pastor. Could you please help me? And the pastor responded very wisely. He said this, let's talk to the Lord about it. So she began to pray. She said, Lord, I know I have this habit of exaggeration. And the pastor stopped her right there and said, wait a minute. Call it the sin of lying. Maybe you'll get over it. At which point the woman was deeply convicted. She repented and confessed. And sometimes we conceal our sin by calling it something more convenient, don't we? More tolerable exaggeration is a lot more comfortable than lying, isn't it? Well, they have a habit of exaggerating. No, they have a habit of lying. Let's call it what it is, call it what God calls it, and God calls it sin. But we allow our sin to be more acceptable in our own minds this way. So many ways that we seek to cover our sin. So what happens when we cover our sin? According to our text this morning, When we cover our sin or conceal our our sin, our verse says that we will not prosper. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Not hard to understand. You don't need to go real deep with this, although I'm going to, because the truth of what this word actually means literally is powerful to our understanding of where we are in the process of sanctification. Literally, this word in the original language means to push forward. So put that definition in the text of Scripture, and it says, he who conceals or covers his sin will not push forward. Well, what is God telling us? All of us, if we are genuinely saved, are in process, right? We're growing and maturing in our faith. None of us have arrived because we're not yet in heaven. We're not dead. And until we die, there's this process of sanctification. But what God is telling us, if we have unconfessed sin, if there's sin in our life that we're concealing and hiding and holding close to the vest, we're not going to push forward. 
We're not going to keep maturing. We're not going to keep growing and becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. Why would we think that we could get closer to God? Why would we think that we conform to the life of Christ by holding on to unconfessed sin? God tells us that is not going to happen. He who conceals his sin, the word of God is abundantly clear, will not prosper, will not move forward. Maybe there are some here this morning who you would say, I recognize my life, my spiritual life is stagnant. This would be the first place I would check. Are there unconfessed sins in your heart? God promises that if that's the case, there will not be movement forward. There will not be spiritual growth. There cannot be until we confess the sin, we repent of it, and we get it right. Concealing sin will keep us from moving forward in our walk with God. This is the thought process behind the premise that confessions of sin is a vital part of the sanctification process. Some genuine disciples, I'm sure, that are here this morning are stagnant because for maybe even for years, there's a sin that we've been harboring. We've We've had unconfessed sin for a period of time and our life, our spiritual life is stagnant. Listen to David's lament in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. We're all abundantly familiar with with this text, but let's put it in the context of our message this morning. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, David said this. When I kept silent, we could put conceals in there, couldn't we? When I kept silent or concealed my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long <clears throat> for day <clears throat> excuse me i apologize for day and night your hand was heavy upon me that's the compassionate love of our god the spirit of god will fulfill his role and part of his role is to convict of sin and if we have unconfessed sin in our life the hand of our loving compassionate god will be heavy upon us as well Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Anyone spend any time outside on Thursday? That's what this verse is talking about. We know what it feels like to have the feverish heat drain away our vitality, take away our energy. That's the emotion, that's the feelings of someone who is unconfessed sin. David makes very clear what took place in his life when he concealed or when he kept silent about his sin. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and I. If we are here this morning and have unconfessed sin, we will not prosper. We will not move forward. We cannot move forward in our walks with God. We cannot live God-honoring lives while we're harboring unconfessed sin. At best, there will be stagnation. At worst, harboring sin could lead to untimely death, precipitated by unrepentant sin. There is no time this morning to develop the reality of that truth, but you can compare Acts chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 11, and James 5 for some teaching on that reality. Unconfessed sin can precipitate untimely death in the life of a genuine believer. So suffice it to say that unconfessed sin is serious, it's dangerous, and it must be confessed. 
acknowledged to our Heavenly Father. In summation of this first option on how we deal with sin, we can see both the detriment of and the warning against concealing it. Instead, we must desire to get real with our Father. He's already aware of our sin. Perhaps this morning it's time for you or I to get real about our sin. This brings us to the second option that the text presents. The preferable one, the only spiritually acceptable one, and thus the only beneficial one. It's option number two, the confession of sin. Verse 13b says this, But he who confesses and forsakes, he who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them. The word confess is a primitive use, primitive root word. It means to open the hand or in the hand, to throw away, to get rid of something. And then that's what confession is. It especially means to revere or worship. So in context, what God is talking about here is to revere or worship God enough to get rid of, to throw away the sin that we've been harboring or holding on to or concealing. If we confess and forsake our sin. In the New Testament, the most common word for confess is homilageo. And it means to speak the same thing, to assent, to agree with. So confession in the New Testament is to agree with God about our sin, not to hide it, not to conceal it, not to uh, put it away, but to confess it, to agree with God, and not only agree with God that it is sin, but agree with God that it requires confession and repentance and moving in a different direction. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I am not a Greek scholar by any means, but it's very important we understand what this word confess means in the original language. It's homologeo, it's to agree with the Lord about our sin, but it's a third-class conditional verb and a present active subjunctive. That's a lot of big words that simply mean it, it's a continual word. So what God is really saying here, what he's teaching us is, if we keep on confessing our sin, if we keep on confessing our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Why do we need to keep on confessing our sin? Worship is participatory. Why do we need to keep on confessing our sin? Because we keep on sinning. So you can't sin today, confess it today, sin next week and say, well, I covered that last week. No, if we keep on confessing, we have a clear account with God. He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness and we can have fellowship with him and we can prosper. We can move forward. We can mature in our faith and grow in our likeness to Jesus Christ if we keep on confessing. It's foolish to think I don't have any sin to confess. We all do because none of us have arrived. The word of God, Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who confesses and forsakes. The word forsakes is talking about leaving or departing. This is the parallel to repentance, metanoia, that we find in the, in the New Testament Greek language that we're familiar with, to turn away, to move in the opposite direction. Agreeing with God about our sin will lead, will lead to turning from that sin and turning to God for sanctification. Biblical confession from a heart of surrender will lead to repentance and a changed life through the power of the indwelling spirit. That's his desire for us. 
If we conceal our sin, we will not prosper. We will not move forward. But if we confess our sin, if we agree with God about our sin, we turn away from our sin, he promises his compassion. Listen to Matthew 3, verses 6 to 8. It says this, John the Baptist speaking, or John the Baptist is baptizing, and it says, And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the hypocrites, they were coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. That's not politically correct, is it? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Turn away from your sin. If you're genuine, if you're real, if you're honest and sincere, not only will you confess your sin, but your life will change because you're turning away from that sin. So what happens when we do confess our sin? Outcome number two is this. We will find compassion but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion will be shown compassion will be given forgiveness and restoration to fellowship with the Lord this is our desire or should be our desire Psalm 32 5 after David laments in verses 3 and 4 about hiding his sin and how his bones were waxing away because the heavy hand of his gracious and compassionate God was upon him seeking for him to confess. In verse 5 he says this, I acknowledged my sin to you. Amen. That's where God wants us all to be. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin why did God forgive because that's who he is because that's what he does we have a gracious compassionate God who's just waiting for those whom he's calling to come and confess and repent of their sin and he will overwhelm us with his compassionate grace and mercy and forgiveness and cleanse us of all our guilt now remember we're not talking specifically about salvation at the moment. We're talking about our fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ with our Heavenly Father. We know that he'll forgive our sin eternally through the sacrifice of Christ if we confess and repent as an unbeliever, but we're talking about where God wants us to be as his children. Confessing. Receiving his compassion. The blessing of receiving the compassion and forgiveness of our sin is contingent upon our willingness to get real with our God. To get real with him about our sin. To agree with God that it's dishonoring to him and to confess to stop concealing and covering our sin. That's his desire for us. By way of conclusion this morning, I want to share an illustration that Dr. Harry Ironside shared back in 1945. He had heard Dr. F.E. Marsh preach and he asked Dr. Marsh for permission to share this illustration and Dr. Marsh granted it to him. And he begins by saying this, there, there's nothing that so takes the joy out of life like unconfessed sin on the conscience. You're here this morning and you know you've, you, you're harboring a sin and maybe you've been harboring this sin in your life. God's greatest desire is that you will confess that this morning to him 
and receive his compassion. Dr. Ironside said he, he heard Dr. F.E. Marsh tell that on one occasion he was preaching on this issue, the necessity for confession of sin, the importance of confession of sin on a believe, in a believer's life. And wherever possible, when we confess, if necessary, to make restitution for wrong done to others. At the close of that sermon, Dr. Marsh recounts that a young man, a member of the church, came up to him with a troubled countenance, and he said this, Pastor, you've put me in a sad fix. I've wronged another, and I'm ashamed to confess it or try to put it right. You see, I'm a boat builder, and the man I work for is an unbeliever. I've talked to him often about his need for Christ, but he scoffs and ridicules it all. Now, I've been guilty of something that if if I acknowledge it to him, pastor, it will ruin my testimony forever. The young man, his name was George, went on to say that some time ago he started to build a boat for himself in his own yard, and boat building, at least at that time, required copper nails because copper nails don't rust in the water. These nails are quite expensive. They were in 1945. Can you imagine what they are today? And the young man had been carrying home quantities of them to use on his own job, and he knew that it was stealing. But he tried to salve his conscience by telling himself that the employer had so many copper nails he would never miss the ones he was taking home for himself, and that he was not even being paid enough that he deserved by the employer. Sound familiar sometimes, folks? But the sermon that Dr. Marsh had preached had brought him to face the fact that he was just a common thief for whose dishonest actions there was no excuse. But he said, Pastor, I cannot go to my boss and tell him what I've done or offer to make restitution for the nails that I've stolen and return the rest. If I do, he will think I am just a hypocrite, and yet these copper nails are digging into my conscience. I know I will never have peace until I make this matter right. This struggle went on in George's heart for a few weeks, and then one night he came running to Dr. Marsh, and he exclaimed, Pastor, I've settled for the nails. My conscience is relieved at last. God has forgiven me. And the pastor said, but what happened when you confessed to your employer? What did he have to say? He said, oh, he, he looked at me strangely, and then he exclaimed, George, I always did think you were just a hypocrite. But now I'm beginning to think there's something in this Christianity after all. Any faith that would make a dishonest workman come back and confess that he had been stealing copper nails and offer to settle for them must be a faith worth having. Dr. Marsh asked him if he might share the story, and he granted him permission. And sometime later he was preaching in another Location and a lady came up to him afterward and said, Dr. Marsh, I have copper nails as well. And he said, surely you're not a boat builder. And she said, no, but I'm a book lover and I have stolen a number of books from my best friend who gets far more than I could ever afford. I decided last night I must get rid of my copper nails, so I took them all back to her today and confessed my sin. I can't tell you how relieved I am. She's forgiven me and more importantly, God has forgiven me, and I'm so thankful the copper nails are no longer digging into my conscience. Brothers and sisters, reformation and restitution do not save. But where one is truly repentant and has come to God in sincere confession, when it's necessary, there will be a desire to make restitution. 
When we sin, we have a choice. We can keep the sin to ourselves, hide it from others, not mention it to God, and do it again when the urge strikes us. Or we can drop to our knees, confess it openly to God, and if others are involved, make restitution. And then take the steps to avoid committing it again. That's accountability. That's having someone to walk with us. Our choice in this matter will greatly affect our lives. Hide and protect our sins, and the righteous God will have a heavy hand upon us, just like he did with David, because he loves us. Confess and forsake our sin, and he will restore our soul with life and light inside and out. The way we handle our sins is determinal, determinant in how we move forward in our lives. I wonder what copper nails we all may be carrying this morning. Sins that need to be confessed to God and fellowship restored with him. In some cases, there may indeed need to be confession made to others and restitution necessary. May we commit not to carrying the burden of our own copper nails any longer beginning today. God promises that from him, when confession is made, compassion is granted. Now, we can't promise you that with other people. And how heinous a thought that brothers and sisters in Christ would withhold forgiveness when confession is made. That should never, never happen. But we can't promise you that. We can promise you that when confession is made to God, compassion is granted because he's told us that. Perhaps you're here this morning and there are other nails you must consider. See the nails on the screen prior to being concerned about the copper ones. The nails that attach Jesus Christ to the cross Iron nails, not copper nails. You see, any compassion, any forgiveness that is offered can only be offered because of the Son of God, because of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, paying the price for sin with his sacrifice on the cross. Copper nails are only relevant when our sin has been paid for by confession, repentance, and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ through the iron nails that secured our forgiveness the cross. Then and only then after we've received eternal life through his death, burial, and resurrection do the copper nails in our lives become a matter to address. What nails are on your conscience this morning? Are they copper nails? Maybe iron nails. Confession always brings compassion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a gracious and merciful God. We pray that for all of us who are gathered here this, this morning, that you would work in our hearts. Father, your spirit is an agent of change, and every one of us need to change. For those who are outside the faith, they need to repent of their sin and recognize the only hope of eternal life is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Repent, confess, believe, and surrender to him as Lord and Savior. Father, for the rest of us who have already made that commitment, there are things in our lives, in each of our lives, that we need to acknowledge, allow your spirit to do a mighty work in our heart, have someone to walk with us, hold us accountable, that we not conceal our sin and not move forward in our faith and our walk with you, but that we would confess our sin and know the compassion of your grace and forgiveness. Father, you are a gracious God. We thank you and praise you and worship you because of that truth. We love you, Lord, and praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name. In a minute, we will uh, welcome the new members on the right hand of